All right, well, this week, we all just read out of Psalm chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and we read a parallel passage out of Genesis. Now, guys, the Psalms are deeply emotional prayers. Have you noticed in today's world that in our modern culture, I guess you'd say, or we'd call it maybe our more sophisticated culture than back in ancient days, people like to act like today that we're so filled with emotional honesty. People act that way. I mean, compared to like more traditional cultures. And I want to read, I read through the Psalms and I just want to say, I don't know if that's true. Because you read the Psalms and you're taken aback. For example, look at this emotion right here where David writes, strike all my enemies on the jaw and break the teeth of the wicked. I mean, don't you, when you read that, don't you just squirm a little bit? You see how angry he's getting. Now, if you're a sophisticated person, whether you're religious or irreligious, you have a tendency to think, wow, that's, that's harsh. This is extreme. Come on, David. I thought you were a man of God. But I'm going to say to you, the Psalms are way too real for that. Way too real. No, look at here. He says, break the jaw, strike my enemies, the teeth of the wicked. See, because the Psalms are saying, what he's saying here is, man, I'm angry. And not just there, but there are all sorts of places in the Psalms where the emotions are so intense. They're raw, they're real, they make us uncomfortable. Why? Here's why. This is why the Psalms does this. Psalms, and I I hope, by the way, that over the next several weeks you get into the Psalms. Start reading it every week. In fact, read a Psalm a day. You're going to be blown away. If you're not in God's word regularly, just start reading a psalm a day. If you need a New Testament, we've got them free for you. Right outside, grab one. But the psalms give us this unique approach to emotions, and we saw it last week. It's what I called a third way. Because I said, on the one hand, the religious approach to handling emotions is to, anybody remember, what do you do? Yeah, you stuff them or you deny them. In other words, religious people like to act like they're not there. It's like you come to church Sunday morning, you've just gotten in a fight with your family, and you've walked in and everybody says hello to you. You're like, hello, how are you? Oh, I'm good. You're on the verge of a divorce, but you're all doing so good. Have you ever noticed Sunday mornings is when, you know, all heaven breaks loose. No, all hell breaks loose. But of course, you come in and you're a religious person, so you want to stuff them and deny them. And oh, no, no, I'm good. I'm under control. I'm bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing wrong with me. I hate my husband. (laughs) You don't want to admit that. Now, on the other hand, in secular circles, unlike religious people, in secular circles, they just love expressing their emotions. And the world teaches you that expressing your emotions is a good in and of itself. And your emotions really define the real you. What you feel is who you are, is what you do. You follow your heart. Now, the Psalms, I'm going to tell you, doesn't do either of those things to review last week. The Psalms say you shouldn't be underaware of your emotions, but you also shouldn't be overawed by your emotions. You shouldn't be stuffing your emotions, but you also shouldn't be bowing to your emotions. You should neither deny them nor vent them. The Psalms say you should be praying them. And by the way, by praying the Psalms, let me be clear about what I don't mean. 
I don't mean that your prayers are well-manicured, well-managed, theologically correct prayers. No, does that look like what this is? That you've got to say everything perfectly before God? No, here's what I'm saying. Listen to me, friend. Best advice I can give you. You're struggling with something. You go into the presence of God. You reflectively pour out your heart to God authentically and honestly. And you ask him to help you process what you're feeling. You don't just vent them. You don't just stuff them. You don't just express them. Now, I want to say to you, today, I'm kind of excited to talk to you because today we have the most primal of all the emotions. Let me give you an example. If you're a parent, you've seen a baby be born. Or if you've ever seen a baby born, would you raise your hand? Just show me. All right. Lots of you have seen babies born. Now, did you notice when the baby was born, there's something true of all of them, they all came out what? Crying. Right? Some of you guys went, they all came out slippery. That's true. No, they all came out crying. Now, here's the question that I'd, ha- I'd have for you. What do those tears really mean when a baby is crying its head off? Look at this cute little baby right here. And where are those tears coming from, do you think? Are these tears of doubt? Is that the emotion going on in this baby? What do you think? Is the baby coming out saying, hmm, I don't know about this. Hmm, I don't know. What's the emotion? Do you think the emotion are tears of sorrow or grief? We talked about that emotion last week. I don't think so. I think those emotions are a little too complex for a newborn baby. I don't think it's sorrow. I don't think it's grief. No, there's a more primary emotion that human beings have. It's more primary than doubt. It's more primary. We're going to talk about doubt next week, by the way, so get ready for that one but it's more primary than doubt. It's more primary than grief or sorrow. No, the first sound, your first sound, their first sound is a wail of fear because that baby is coming out and this baby is saying, what the heck is happening? That's what it's doing. It's like this baby has just come out into a whole new world and the baby's like, where are the walls? Why is it so cold? Who has their finger down my mouth? Who's grabbing my feet? The baby's going, why'd you just hit me? You know, (laughs) everything was fine. And now you can imagine the most primal emotion that a baby's going to experience right when it's born is going to be fear because it's all new. That's the way you came into the world. And that's why people say fear is the most primal of all emotions. So what I want to talk to you today about is not praying your tears like last week. Today I want to talk to you about praying your fears. How do you pray your fears? Now, here's what's interesting because David did something. Now listen to me. David literally has armies after him. Literal people are after him trying to kill him, but right in the middle, what does he get to in the psalm? Take a look at the scripture. What does he say here? He says, let's read it. The Lord sustains me. I will not fear. Interesting. I will not fear. He says, I sleep in the midst of all of these thousands of armies. In other words, David's discovered a way to pray his fear to deal with his fear. And Psalm 3 is really all about praying your fear so that you're able to handle it. And I'm going to tell you this, if it can help David, (laughs) it can help you. 
So what do we learn about fear? I just want to think about that for a minute. What I'm going to explain to you is that there are two levels down into fear. There's really two levels of fear, and I'm probably oversimplifying it, but I'll say it that way. And then I'm going to give you four steps out of fear according to this psalm in Genesis. Very practical, two levels down, four steps out. Everybody ready? All right, here we go. Again, David says, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Now, by the way, in those two scriptures are the two levels of fear. I'm going to show you what I mean. Look at the heading of this passage in the Bible. I I just took a picture of my Bible. You'll notice the heading. This psalm is all about a psalm of David when he fled from his son. Anybody remember his name? Absalom. So when Absalom decided to declare himself as king, he started a coup d'etat. And he ran David into the wilderness. His own son was wanting to kill him and take over as king. And David had to go into the wilderness, flee for his life. He's being deposed. And there's a huge army after him to imprison him, to kill him. Now, the first plunge into fear right here is in verse one. Notice, he says, O Lord... How many are my foes? How many rise up against me? That's the first thing you have. He's saying, oh Lord, I'm being attacked. His body's being attacked. His physical being is being attacked. They want to imprison him or kill him. So when I say two levels of fear, the first level of fear is what I would call, write this down, basic fear. Just write that down. It's just basic fear. Now, there is a guy who I have been reading recently. He's actually, he's not around any, any longer, but he was groundbreaking when it comes to studying fear and anxiety. He was a PhD by the name of Rollo May, and lots of May's books are still out. I know he wrote a long time ago, but he wrote about anxiety and fear, and he was trying to show the differences between anxiety and fear. In one of his books, I just caught this, he said, you know, if you're walking across a highway, for example, and you see a car speeding toward you, what's going to happen? <laughs> your heart's going to do what? It's going to beat faster, and you're going to focus your eyes on the distance between you and the car, and you're going to see how far you have to go to get away from that car, and what are you going to do? You're going to You're going to frog her across, aren't you? You're going to go across. And what you felt in that moment is basic what? Fear. But after the car sped by, you might have this feeling of like faintness or this hollowness in the pit of your stomach. He'd say that's moving into anxiety. In other words, anxiety gets a little deeper. Anxiety is what we feel when our existence as selves are threatened. And what Rollo May is doing, this this guy, was so helpful. Because what he's saying is, look, there's a healthy kind of fear, but you look at David's fear, go to the scripture again. Go ahead and go to the next one. He, He has a healthy kind of fear. But there's an unhealthy kind of fear. He says, many are saying of me, read it with me, God will not deliver him. Now that verse may not seem like much to you until you read it in the context of kingship. Because this is what the people are saying about the king. They're not just attacking his body. They're attacking his identity. 
They're attacking his calling. They're attacking his character. In fact, if you go back, write this down in your notes. If you go back and read 2 Samuel chapters 15 to 18, here's what they're doing right now with David. And you can read it. Again, 2 Samuel chapters 15 to 18. They were saying, hey, do you remember King Saul? You remember how King Saul sinned before King David? King Saul sinned and God abandoned him. God took the kingship from him. God fled from him and withdrew from him. What terrible things he's done. They said, how could a man like that be our king? Now, what's going on in verse two is they're starting to say that about David. Just like God left Saul, now he's left David. This man should not be our king. See, he's not just being attacked physically. He's being attacked psychologically. His very identity is under attack. So he's dealing with fear, but he's also dealing with this deeper, this unhealthy, debilitating, paralyzing, what I'm just going to call, even though I'm oversimplifying it a bit, I'll admit, please, therapists, don't send me connection cards. I'm doing my best. I'm a preacher. But, but write this down. This is what I'd call a deeper anxiety. Write that down. It's a deeper anxiety. See, the first may be a healthy fear. It's constructive. It's specific. What do I mean? If somebody's out to get you and there's a specific threat and you know you're threatened, it's probably good that you have a little bit of fear. Why? Because there's something here worth protecting. And that's what fear does, by the way. Fear helps you to summon all your human capabilities to go on the defense when you need to. Protect what's so important. What does fear do? Fear galvanizes you for action. But this Rollo May, this guy, he's right because he says there's a deeper kind. He calls it anxiety. He says it's not like fear because here's what happens with anxiety. Ready? When you have anxiety, you don't necessarily quite know what's causing it. You don't really know why it's there, but you're feeling paralyzed. And instead of galvanizing you to act, you're unable to act. Have you ever noticed if you have anxiety, by the way, I struggle with anxiety. A person who struggles with true anxiety is always agitated, is always nervous, they often are always upset or they're just kind of restless. They're a little bit scared. Now what's happening there is your autonomic nervous system is always on when you struggle with anxiety. And it's bad for you physically. You're always kind of nervous. You're always looking around. You're always pushing yourself. You're sort of scared. You're restless. You're agitated. Again, your autonomic nervous system doesn't shut off. It stays on all the time. So you can see David's dealing not just with this, but he's dealing with this. By the way, this leads to what? Do we know physically? Ulcers? High blood pressure, literally where your body is getting eaten away from the inside. And here's what Rollo Mayhi said. He said, the problem with it is it's not just a threat to your physical self. It's a threat to your sense of self. He said, something in your life that made you feel in control, something that made you feel you had an identity, it's being threatened. You see where we're going. 
So David's afraid, yes, he's afraid. He's saying, many are rising up against me. I do, I fear for my life. But he's also afraid because he's saying, many are saying, God's no longer with me. My entire identity as a king is wrapped up in the fact that God's with me. And now they're saying he's not. Something's destructive. This is what we're talking about. And guys, when this happens, I'm just gonna tell you, you'll sink. You'll sink. So I want you to notice something. He does find a way out of it. And here's how he does it. Because look at verse three. There are four things he does from the beginning to the end of this psalm. And he starts it with a very important word. Everybody take a look at this word right here. But. Just circle that but right there on your outline. See, he says, I'm scared. He says, I'm depressed. He says, I'm angry, I'm doubtful, I'm guilty, whatever your feelings are, but the first word of verse three is so important because he's saying, I'm scared, but. In other words, what he's saying is there is a way out. And guys, I'm just gonna tell you, there are four things that if you read this whole psalm, you're gonna see that he does, and I think it's so cool. So I'm gonna share them with you, you ready? Four steps out of the pit so that you don't sink. Are you ready? I'm going to tell them to you first. I'll just give them all to you. If you write fast, you'll have all the points you can walk out right now. <laughs> I'm going to tell you ultimately that, that what he's going to say is, first thing you got to do is you got to follow your thread. Second thing you got to do is relocate your glory. Third thing you got to do is see your substitute. Fourth thing is you got to remember the people. So those are the four things I've given to you. Goodbye. We'll see you later. No, I'm just kidding. All right. First thing is this. Write this down. Online, write this down. You've got to follow your thread. Follow your thread. Verse three, he says, notice what it says here. There's a very important scripture here in verse three. Go ahead and pull that up. He says, but you are a shield for me. Is that right? No, that's not right. Is that what it says? No. He says, but you are a shield to me. Is that right? No. He says, you are a shield what? around me. Now that's interesting that he says around me. Why? Because in ancient culture, you're talking about two different kinds of shields. There was first a shield that looks a little bit like this. It would have been a small shield that you carried like this on your arm and you used it for hand-to-hand combat and you used it to blow off an opponent. With the other arm, you'd make a blow. You'd block with one, you'd make a blow with another. You'd shield yourself from a blow, you'd make a blow. That's that kind of shield right there. Now, I just want to say something. This shield right here is in no way and any sense around you. Is that right? It's too small. But there's another kind of shield that David would have had in mind. And it's this one right here. And it's the size of a door. And it wraps around you. Now, what is this shield for as opposed to the other? When you use a shield like this one, what would you use a shield like this for? Is this for hand-to-hand combat? Nope. This kind of a shield is for when you're following the general's orders and you're gonna go besiege a fortress and that shield is gonna protect you from danger as you march to whatever the general says to do. That's what that shield does. It shields you as you go into danger. Look at this uh, description from the Canaanite period here. They are meant to shield you as you march into danger. And by the way, you're only gonna use this shield when you're going on purpose to follow the general. And by the way, where's he sending you? 
Right into what? Danger. They're going to pour hot lava on you. They're going to throw two-ton boulders down on you. So you got to understand, when David says, I'm scared, he says, I'm really scared, but you're a shield around me. What's he doing? Listen to me, guys. You've got to get this. David is not saying, I'm scared, but I know you won't let bad things happen to me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm scared because I know you're taking me into danger, and I know that I have to march forward into danger. And by the way, the shield is only around you when you're marching which direction? Forward. If I turn around and run, are you protected? No. He's saying, God, you're not shielding me from danger. You're shielding me in the danger. Now, there's a big difference. And Christian, you need to understand the Christian life is not about God shielding you from danger. <laughs> the Christian life is about God shielding you in the danger. But he still is going to say march. He's still going to say go. And I know sometimes it's like God says go and it's, the general is shouting onward go and you're like, oh my goodness, I, how am I going to get through this? Maybe you feel that way right now. And what you want to do is you want to turn around and you want to run. But I'm telling you, the protection only works going forward. Do you realize that? That's what David's saying. In other words, God is going to take you to places that you don't quite understand, that are confusing, that are hard. Obedience is difficult. But I'm going to ask you, what's the alternative? What's the alternative to obedience? Disobedience. And listen, obedience is hard, but disobedience is lethal. So what's David doing? He's saying, listen, bad things are happening to me. Look at the scripture. He's saying, I'm scared. But he's saying, God's protection only works if I'm going forward. I'm going to be obedient. Because he knows that one ounce of disobedience is more lethal than 10 tons of obedience. Now, I want to give you the perfect example of this. You ready? There's a children's book by the name of uh, The Princess and the Goblin. Anybody here ever read it? Written by a guy way back by the name George MacDonald. And in fact, I've been waiting to use this illustration for like five years. I've had it filed away. And I was so excited when I thought, oh, I'm on a topic where this is going to work. So if, it, if it does work, I hope it does. This story from George MacDonald describes a little princess that lives in a big house in the mountains and she's surrounded by goblins and all these, you know, others are trying to protect her from the goblins. And one night, I'll just read you the story. It says, the little princess finds in the very utmost attic of their house, she has her own fairy godmother, grandmother living there. And her fairy grandmother's a beautiful woman, a supernatural woman. She's a woman of power, beauty, majesty. And the little princess says, Grandmother, if I'm ever in danger, can I just find you and I'll be all right? Can, how, how can I do that? Grandmother says, oh yeah, no problem. It's very simple. And what she does is she gives the little girl a ring. She says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tie a little thread to this ring and then I'm going to put the other end of the ball of thread in my drawer right here where I am. Whenever you're in danger, you just take the ring, 
put it under your pillow, pull tight on the thread, and use your forefinger to follow the thread, and it will always take you to me. So the little girl, she's so excited, she's like, this is terrific. When I'm in danger, she says, she says, I'll go right to you. I'll just follow the thread. There's only one thing. Grandmother says, it may take you in a roundabout kind of way. So suddenly that night, she hears this creature comes through the window. She hears it snarling and hissing. She is freaked out. Uh-oh, so what does she do? She takes off her what? ring, she puts it under the pillow, she pulls it tight, and she's very excited. She starts following it out of the room. She thinks, oh, it's going to take me, I'll be safe. She expected it to lead her straight to the stair up to grandmother's room. But when she goes out of the room, she notices it takes her in the opposite direction. To her dismay, it leads her far from the stair. It actually leads her out the door, out into the night. She's in shock. She's still following the thread. The thread leads her up a mountain. The thread takes her into a cave. It takes her down into the heart of the mountain. She keeps trying to say to herself, wait a minute, I know it's going to take me to my grandmother sometime. Grandmother said it would, I know it. But then it took her down a steep path. She's so afraid. She tried so hard to think of grandmother, but now it's pitch dark, deeper and deeper into the mountain. You know what she thought? She thought her grandmother had forsaken her. So what what did she do? What would you do? She tried to follow the thread backwards. Wouldn't you? Well, it brought me this way. I should be able to follow it backwards and at least go to where I felt a little safer. So she tries to follow it backwards, but here's what she discovers. When she tries to follow this thing backwards, the thread disappears. She turns around to go forward. The thread reappears. The thread will only work going forward. Otherwise, it'll vanish. Now, friends, I'm gonna say this to you. This little children's story, by the way, George McDonald's a Christian, this is a perfect illustration of what the Christian life is like. This little girl finally follows the thread to a heap of stones and she doesn't even know how to get through and she finally falls down on the stones and she weeps and cries because she's not sure what to do. And I'm saying to you, the Bible teaches that following Jesus Christ is very much like that. He takes you in a roundabout sort of way and he seems to take you to a wall but if you turn around and go backward, you're gonna know it's not there at all and you're gonna be in worse shape because God's protection only goes forward and I know you're looking and you're saying, listen, to be obedient to God is nuts. I can't do what God's saying. You're saying, he's taken me into danger. But I'm telling you, that's the only way that God's protection actually works. You've got to do what? What's the first point? Follow your thread and you take it. Here's the second thing, write this down. Number two, what does the psalmist do? What does David do? You've got to relocate your glory, write that down. You've got to relocate your glory, why? What does he say? Second part of verse three, this is an important thing, relocate your glory, what does he say? He says, oh Lord, you bestow, let's, let's read it together. Let's do this together. He says, come on, oh Lord, you bestow glory on me and you lift up my head. Now, in the Hebrew, this literally says, oh Lord, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. Now, why would he say to God, you're my glory? Why do you think he'd say that? He would only say that if up until then something else had been his glory, 
In other words, there were other things that David built his identity on, his security on, and now those things have been taken away from him. Now, here's David. Here's a guy that was a popular king. Here's a guy that could say, hey, I'm a popular king. I'm a giant slayer. People like me. I'm a good father. But now that illusion is over. His son wants to kill him. He might have said, David, at one point in his life, he might have said, I've got a great moral record. (laughs) Yeah, right. He's now committed adultery. He's now murdered somebody. He might have said at one point, but I have the power. Well, he doesn't have any power anymore. Here's a person who's admitting something, and here it is. He's saying, I am filled with anxiety because I used to trust in my moral record. I used to trust in my family's love. I used to trust in the approval of people. I used to trust in my political power, and I located my glory in those things. They defined my life. Guys, do you understand what I'm saying? What's glory? What is the biblical word for glory? Does anybody here know what it means? Whenever you read glory in the Bible, it actually means something. You know what it means? It means weight. Whenever it says the glory of the Lord came upon them, it literally means the weight of the Lord, the gravity of the Lord. What what God's saying is there are things that you've put too much weight in. They've become your glory. And what he's saying is, yes, these were good things, but I shouldn't have located my glory in them. Yes, I was king. Yes, I had the approval of my people. But you understand what's causing this debilitating anxiety is that he had something good, but he located his glory in something good. And you're not supposed to put your glory in something good. You're supposed to put your glory in God. That's the difference. Now, you may be here and you're good at something, You're talented at something. Maybe you have a spouse and that's a good thing. Maybe you're a parent to some beautiful children and that's a good thing. But have you put your glory in those things? Who is the lifter of your head? What do you put your glory in? And I'm going to say to you, if you locate your glory in those things, being a parent, being a good person, being a religious person, making a lot of money, your glory, your worth, your security, listen to me, if you put your glory in something finite, what are you going to do when circumstances come? What are you going to do when history changes and time and space doesn't go your way? If that's where your glory is, friends, no wonder you've got anxiety. (laughs) You'll always live in fear. You know when COVID hit us? So many people were rattled. But for many people, it was a wake-up call. Where are you putting your glory? In what exactly do you trust? In who do you trust? Because I got to tell you, if our glory is always in something finite, we're always going to live in fear. Now, David realized what he'd done. And what's interesting is the first step is follow your thread. Be obedient to God. Suck it up. Do what he's called you to do. But that's not enough. Now he's examining his heart. He's saying, why am I scared? Why am I anxious? It's because I've put my glory in things I shouldn't have. And his anxiety, by the way, it's just smoke. If you follow it, it'll take you to the fire. You've got to figure out what is causing that anxiety. But then he says, oh Lord, look at the scripture. He says, oh Lord, you are the one who bestows glory on me. You are the one who does what? 
lifts my head. That's what you've got to do. <laughs> By the way, the whole lift your head thing, isn't that cool? Because what do you do when you lift your head? When you lift your head, you're what? You're proud. When my son does something I'm proud of, he makes me lift my head. What is the thing that you're most proud of in your life? David says, man, I'm proud of what, who I am in Christ, who I am in God. Here's the third thing, write this down. You've got to see the substitute. You've got to see the substitute. Now somebody says, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, here's the question. Here's what I'd ask you. How in the world does David know that God is proud of him? I mean, think about it. If you went to God, you're David, and you go to God and you say, oh yeah, God, I killed somebody. I failed as a father. I failed as a king. I committed adultery. This is David, David we're talking about. He says, I failed as a human being. I failed as a believer. He's saying, I have literally failed you in every way. But he's saying, you're the lifter of my head. I know you're proud of me. That's a hard thing to say. How could he say that? I... I know I failed you in every way, but I know I have the knowledge that you're proud of me. How does he know? Well, it's the whole key of the message. And if you realize what he realized, there's nothing ever that can bother you. In fact, let me tell you how he knows. What does he say in verse four? Take a look at it. He says, to the Lord, let's read it together. To the Lord, I cry aloud and he answers me from his. Now, just circle and he answers me. He, say, he doesn't say, I cry to you and I hope that you'll hear me. He's confident, you'll answer me. But what, what's the key there? It's because it's the holy hill. Well, what's on the holy hill? It's the tabernacle of Mount Zion. The holy hill. See, what David is saying here is, by referencing the holy hill, he's saying there's a place of sacrifice for me. And what I think he's thinking of is the passage you read earlier, Genesis 15. Because the same words show up in Genesis 15. Look, here's what happens. It's the same stuff. Go look at verse nine, Genesis 15. It says, so the Lord said to Abram, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram Bring it three years old along with a dove and a young pigeon. And so it says, and Abraham brought these to him, cut them in two and arranged them. Now, Abram is scared. And God says to Abram, don't be afraid, Abram. And here we have a situation where God is trying to help Abram with his fear. What does he say to Abram? How does he deal with his fear? It's almost impossible for me to believe that David didn't know Genesis 15, this is in the Torah, this is in the law, David would have been able to think about this story, one of the books of Moses. As David's trying to calm his own fear, he's thinking about how Abram was scared. And Abram says, God, how do I know it's gonna be okay? How can I know? And the scripture says God did something that night. David's thinking about it, even though he didn't understand it. What's David thinking of? Read the scripture. Okay, how can, remember the question is, how can I be sure you're with me, God? I mean, I'm following the thread, I'm following you, I'm being obedient, but my life's falling apart. How can I be sure? So God says to him again, let's look at it again. God says, take a bunch of animals, cut them up. Abram knew immediately what that meant. See, Abram knew that when God asks you to cut up a bunch of animals and make a sacrifice, that means you're about to take a what? Do you know? A a vow. 
you're about to make a covenant with God, a contract. By the way, back in these days, they didn't have, they didn't have notary republics, right? So when you made a vow, you had to have an animal sacrifice. And when you were taking the vow, you'd cut up an animal. And the person who was making the vow would cut the pieces in two and then walk between the pieces. Why? That was symbolic of them saying, listen, as I walk between these cut up animals, take a look at this picture. This give you a symbol of what it's talking about. The, the person would walk between these cut up animals and by walking through, what they're saying is, if I don't keep my commitment to you, let me be cut up. If I don't do everything I've said, let me be sacrificed and thrown into the wilderness if I don't keep the promises I'm making you today. So Abram is told to cut up some animals. And he figured he was gonna walk in between the pieces. But then look what happens. It says, this is powerful, guys. He says, that night, verse 17, take a look. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. What is that? That's the theophany of God. God himself goes between the pieces. A, a torch and a lamp. And in that moment, the Lord said, I'm making this commitment to you. God is saying, I will keep this commitment to you or let me be cut into pieces. Let me be broken. God's saying, I promise to honor you. God's saying, I promise to take away your sins. God's saying, and to give you this blessing, and God says, if I have to be cut up, even if I have to pay the price of your disobedience, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna bless you. So you say, how could David know? David says to God, you're my glory. God, you're the lifter of my head. How could he know? Because of the holy hill. Centuries later, darkness came down on a hill. It was called Calvary's Hill. And Jesus Christ was cut up and broken. And the Bible says that he was cut off from the land of the living. And that's how you and I know that he's proud of us. That's how you and I know that he loves us, that he values us like that. Why? Because of his holy hill because he was willing to be the sacrifice. Now, to the degree that you let this sink into your heart, and to the degree that this becomes the thing that your whole life is based, to the degree that this is your glory, that's gonna make you significant. You've gotta see what Jesus did. You've gotta see the substitute and realize everything is dependent on here. It's not your religiousness, it's not your works, it's not what you've done, it's not what you can do, it's what he's done for you. And then finally, let me close with this. Write this down. Four things psalmist does. Get out of the pit of fear. You gotta remember the people. Write that down. You remember the people. What do I mean? Well, you look at verses seven and eight. He says in verses seven and eight, Lord, deliver me. Oh my God, strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Now, it seems like here that he's just getting angry, doesn't it? How many would agree he's getting angry? But no, I want you to look carefully. Because what's happened here, David has peace now. He trusts God. He says, I don't need to fear. You're the lifter of my head. He has that inner peace. Again, look at what it says. He says, I lie down and sleep. 
I wake up again because the Lord sustains me. I don't need to fear tens of thousands if they're drawn up against me on every side. See, he's dealt with his fear. But what does he want to do now? Now he wants justice. Now he wants deliverance for his people. Why? He knows Absalom's not going to be a good king. (laughs) He knows that God has not chosen Absalom to be king. He says, I care about my people, so now God have my back. I'm going to work for justice. I'm going to work for the people. You guys, here's the point. Do you know what the opposite of fear is? Somebody tell me the opposite of fear. The opposite of fear is something called love. Do you know that? That's the opposite. People think that the opposite of love is hate. That's not true. The opposite of love is fear. Because fear is self-centeredness. Love is self-giving. Love says, I choose not to fear. Love says, I'm going to serve you anyway and love you anyway in spite of my fear. So it's for that reason you never actually deal with fear all by yourself. You have to love somebody. (laughs) Jesus exampled it. What did Jesus do? What gave Jesus the courage? See, he says, let's read it. He says, there is no fear in what? But perfect love casts out fear. God says, if you'll start loving, I'll take care of you. Now, you know what? Look at Calvary's hill again, the holy hill where Jesus was really sacrificed. God was sacrificed. Can I ask you a question? Don't you think this looked like a dead end? Let's go back to the princess and the goblin. She throws herself on those stones thinking, I don't know what to do. That's what every first century follower of Jesus thought. But I'm gonna tell you something. Jesus followed the thread. And you know what Jesus knew? Jesus knew that there's always a resurrection on the other side of a grave. But he followed the thread that God put before him obediently. He surrendered it to God. You gotta follow the thread. You gotta relocate your glory. What are you, what are you, what are you afraid of? What are you putting your glory in. You got to see the substitute that he's the one that did it. And then you got to love people. Let's pray. Father, I pray for every man and woman person here that's dealing with, um, with fear and anxiety. And Lord, would you just help us to help us to do these things like David, to put our faith and our trust in you and you alone. God, help us to do it. Help us to center our glory on you that the weight of our lives would only come from knowing you. Everything else is, it's icing on the cake. It's, it's just sugarcoating. But Lord, what matters most is what we gain by walking right with you. If that's settled, then everything else can be settled. Everything else is just up to you. God, we love you. We give you our fears. We give you our anxieties. Lord, take them from us. In Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Amen.